hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storr. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Mm-hmm. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 177, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you? I'm very well. I've survived reading Rogue and having strange dreams based on the fact that it was a very scary book with murders that I wasn't expecting. I gotta say, if there's something in this world that can give you nightmares, I am genuinely afraid of it. Yes, it's, uh, it's two of the strangest and uh, most gruesome killings I've ever read. Really? Mm. I've, um, I've never read where a Bigfoot rips off so they bleed to death before, but there you have it. Wow. Okay, well, spoiler for Luke Phillips' Rogue. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I don't know if I'm going to read it now. Oh, Let's see. boy. Yeah, oh, that oh boy is right, mystery guest. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, other than that, I'm just, uh, I'm just thankful I'm avoiding the uh, rise of the animals in Canada. Yeah, things are getting rough over here. I, uh, I, I coped with them this morning by accidentally taking my pre-workout at the same time as my microdose, and I just floated around the gym for the better part of an hour. I was uh, a, a pretty terrifying figure, both I think to myself and everyone else. Mm. It can only be a matter of time before the Sasquatch rise as well as the kangaroos and llamas. Well, I mean, speaking of dangerous Canadian animals, we do have a guest on the show. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know him as the host of Dark Poutine... Canada's number one true crime show. I don't care if that doesn't statistically shake out. Mm-hmm. It is number one and fuck the other guys. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's number one. I, I, again, I don't, I, that's wrong. I don't care. Uh, and also co-host of the Supernatural Circumstances podcast. He is Mike Brown. That is me. Mike, well, it is. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. Thank you. Woo. I'm excited. I'm talking about kangaroos. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, escaping from the Oshawa Fun Farm and then uh, punching a cop in the face after it's been on the run for four days. I mean, you know. Look. Which leads me to believe that it was not having much fun no. in that farm. Yeah. Fun farms. Who are they really fun for? Definitely not the animals that live there. They can't be. Oh, look, it's another child come to pet me. Fantastic. I can't wait till I <laughs> <laughs> This one's for Harambe. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Everything did start going downhill after that, didn't it? It One thousand percent. That is the marker where things started to go for a dump. I mean, Jesus did say we wouldn't recognize him when he returned. Well, that's true. That's true. Oh, no. Harambe died for our sins. Perhaps. Yes. Mm. I did meet Snowflake. Who's Snowflake? See, he knows all these weird animals that we don't know. Who's Snowflake? Snowflake was the albino gorilla that lived in Barcelona Zoo. Oh. Beautiful. And just met him, and then he passed away about a year later. It's gorgeous. Never seen a gorilla, a baby gorilla in a nappy before, but that's what they do in the gorilla crash at Barcelona Zoo <laughs> as well, which I thought was adorable. These little cute gorillas, and they've all got nappies on, pampers. <laughs> <laughs> I, for one, am glad you specified you met him at the zoo, because if you told me you just met him in the bar, I'd be like, sure, no, that, that's a thing that hey, Paul could do. I once went to Bridlington and went outside for a cigarette. And somebody had a pet raccoon on a beer table eating peanuts, so anything's possible. <laughs> well, Mike is here to help us tell spooky stories. And on this episode, we are going to be telling stories from parking lots. 
And Ooh. that, yeah, and that is because I myself have recently been spending uh, more time than I would like in parking lots. I've picked a certain... <laughs> <laughs> Paul. <laughs> is it, there's, is a, it, there's, a term for, there's a term for that in this country. Is it peering Jeff? up at windows? Is that what you're doing? Uh, I don't think that's what Paul's thinking oh. about. Oh. Are you, are you there on your own? <laughs> well, until they come to the public washroom, and then, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> All right, George Michael. That was good to say that. <laughs> so no, I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not uh, doing whatever it is Paul is referring to. We'll we'll save that. No, I am I am delivering food again. I, I'm picking up some some chefs doing a little moonlighting, make some extra cash, and I found myself uh, I found myself just yeah in the parking lot of the local Ring a Wing the other night. <laughs> Ring a Wing. Ring a wing. Thinking, what? Jesus, there better be some. What's that? <laughs> ring a wing. Yeah, that's a local. Pick a up local the phone wing and ring for a wing. Yeah, I get it. Don't mispronounce that. Then. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. No one talks to you because you're a driver. You're less than human. Right. <laughs> you're a tool. You were just a conduit. Yes. More or less. Yeah, I am a funnel <laughs> for chicken wings. I am a chicken wing. <laughs> oh shoot. We've got a number of interesting stories lined up for this show. Stories that take place in parking lots, but run the range of paranormal experience from phantom flames to doppelgangers, which are always terrifying, and all kinds of other cool stuff. So we're looking forward to getting into that. But of course, before we do, we have to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you're the blue cheese dip to our buffalo wings, which is to say that without you, this whole experience would be incomplete. And of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Brenda Joy. Julia Cat Martin. <laughs> Tim L. And AC Cowart. Guys, thank you so, so, so much for your generous support of the show. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate it. Everyone who listens to Ghost Story Guys, you help make us who we are. But this show would not exist without our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to join the team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. We'll wait till the end of the show to tell you about all the cool stuff you get, but we will say, patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't want that? Ads suck. Again, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. And if you are an Apple Podcasts subscriber, please do forward your confirmation to us. We would love to thank you here in this section. Again, that's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. Shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and musician Jerry Smith. You can find Jerry's music streaming as Rainy Days for Ghosts and Street Witch on music platforms everywhere, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. That's a Ghost Story Guys house label. And speaking of Night Harvest Recordings, Paul, our very first soundtrack album has dropped. Mm. Yes, the, uh, the music to season six, so the 2022 season of Ghost Story Guys, all composed by Jerry, is now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Apple Music, rather, all those places. And uh, again, all you got to do is search for Ghost Story Guys Season 6. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
scream. I'm a bit of a nomad, and so I will often throw everything in my camper and light out for a change of scenery. Until this particular night in a parking lot in Nevada, nothing strange had ever happened to me. At the time, it was late, and I was inside my camper trying to bed down for the evening. I was parked in a lot on the outskirts of a small city near to the mountains. The freeway was nearby, as was the airport, so even though the lot was relatively empty, I didn't exactly feel isolated. About an hour after tucking in, I heard what sounded like a terrible, feminine scream. These reverberating, disembodied noises. At first, I figured that, while it was a little unnerving, it was probably some animal being amplified or altered by road noise and acoustics. It stopped soon enough, but I was intrigued and tried setting up my phone to record. Unfortunately, the microphone wasn't able to pick up anything. This makes me think I was just dreaming for what happened next, but I remember being pretty alert and able to move, wiggle my feet, and so on. Maybe 30 minutes later, I heard the sounds again, but they went on for much longer, a half hour or more. I began to wonder if they were coming from the trailer next to me. I stayed put. Then I heard the sounds, still at a distance, start coming from around my door, and now I was freaked out. I kept trying to convince myself it was some sort of wild cat, even though the strange acoustics didn't really make sense. And then it spoke. I heard it say what sounded like my name and a string of really specific insults directed at some of my deepest anxieties. Sometimes the sounds would pause, and when they did, all of my hair would stand up in a wave like it never has before. This went on a few more times until I eventually decided to not let the sounds and insults bother me. Soon, the noises stopped for the rest of the night. I was still on edge and couldn't sleep much. Once the first light of dawn began to creep over the mountains, I gave up and moved on, catching a couple hours in a truck stop parking lot a few dozen miles away. To this day, I wonder if this was just a case of a bad dream or sleep paralysis, but what was strange is I remember shifting around a little and moving my feet. I was also listening pretty intently. Maybe it was my imagination, but I don't think so. And uh, still not the most horrible thing that's ever happened in a truck stop parking lot, but it's up there. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, well, it's still pretty creepy. Uh, Holy smokes. I've heard some strange things in parking lots. I've slept in parking lots uh, when I was traveling across the country. It was only two nights, essentially, I slept in like a rest stop parking lot. And you hear strange things in strange places, but I never heard anything saying my name and and talking about uh, how fat I am or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, right? I I like, thanks, disembodied voices. I can give myself enough shit. I don't need the help. Yeah, right? (laughs) I, I will say, though, I think that that's something that would not work on me. Because while I, I will sabotage myself from now until the end of time, uh, other people cannot do it for me. So like, mm-hmm. unless it's someone I really care about, your opinion is just irrelevant to me. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if it was my voice, maybe like, man, you're not really very good at your job, are you? Oh, shit. You know, that, that, that might get inside my head. Well, that is inside my head, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine too. Mine too. Yeah bit of imposter yes. syndrome but yeah never an external voice like that that is really scary i i kind of thought at first i was thinking maybe like a wild animal you know like because uh, there, there's what is it not a fox but something like that when it screams it sounds like a woman screaming cats mm-hmm. 
Cats can do that. If you've ever been woken up by a cat at 3am in the morning, that's good. I mean, foxes screaming. We hear them round here all the time. My goodness. Maybe it's foxes I'm thinking of. Mm, they are terrifying. You can hear them for ages. So either when they're mating or when they're sort of playing, they make tons of racket. Owls do as well. Owls can screech like a, like a banshee. I used to live next door to an oil refinery in Burnaby, British Columbia. And, uh, and so at night we would hear uh, there were coyotes that lived on the property over there. And they would, one would start yipping. And before you knew it, there was this howling cacophony of, of uh, coyotes. And n- you did not get any sleep once the coyotes were doing whatever they were doing. It was so, so eerie to hear. You never knew when it was going to happen, but it was always at an inopportune time. It's kind of crazy to think that you can have populations of animals like that in an urban place like Surrey, or sorry, Burnaby. Yeah. We always forget that these things are, are a little more, I guess, in keeping with our theme of, of you know, dangerous Canadian animals. <laughs> yeah. You just forget that these things can actually just be out there. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. Who's encroaching on whose territory really? Yeah. I, you know, like I, I was reading that Toronto is having a real problem with raccoons. They've more or less given up. Japan is struggling with bears right now. Like there are urban areas where in Japan where bears are wandering in to uh, different places and and at- having bears attack human beings who confront them or surprise them or something like that. So on the Japanese news, somebody sent me an article uh, of the Japanese news doing a how to prevent bear attacks with one of the reporters dressed as a bear <laughs> with just a bear hat, like a, a mask on, you know, pretending to be the bear and the other reporter showing this is what you should do kind of thing <laughs> if you're ever attacked by a bear. You know, if this was an 80s movie or an 80s uh, comedy, mm-hmm. that guy would then be humped by a bear. Right. Actually, right. definitely. What, what movie does that happen in, Paul? It was a movie you told me about. It's a gorilla. Oh, that's training places. places. That's, that's it. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. The uh, the guy gets locked in the cage with the amorous <laughs> gorilla. <laughs> That's the one. That's the one. It was mm. a different time. <laughs> yeah, but they use um they use robot wolves in uh, in Japan to to uh, well they used to to keep the wolves and the bears away from mm-hmm. certain areas, but obviously they're not working. Right. Yeah. Maybe maybe the the bears are on to the the robotics. I don't know. Or, or maybe they can actually smell that it's not real. There could be that. I mean, it seems that people were more scared of them than the the wildlife because they do look like some kind of robotic hellhound. (laughs) I was going to say that's because animals are immune from existential dread. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's just that's just another human piece of garbage. Whereas we look at that and go, well, I'm looking forward to when the cops are using that to chase me down. Right. Perhaps they just need to start dressing as the kappa and that should frighten the bear away. (laughs) (laughs) I'm missing something completely here. A cap is like a, a Japanese folkloric water monster that's uh, a, a bit of a trickster, but also very vicious. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, strangely seen as one of the main bad guys in the absolutely batshit crazy Yakuza apocalypse. Uh-huh. I still got to watch that. That's the one where the guy uh, has the frog mask and is fighting with a samurai sword? Yes. On his little tricycle. Okay, I've not seen the tricycle part. I've only seen the bits of the final <laughs> showdown at the end. That's how he appears. He just rides in. There's like a big Yakuza vampire zombie battle. And then this man in a frog suit turns up riding a tricycle, gets off and just starts kung fuing everybody. It's two hours, 20 minutes of absolute madness. 
That sounds like my kind of film. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch this for years. Yeah. I, I remember I cut together the trailer for that frog movie we did for Movie Nightish. I used clips <laughs> from Yakuza Apocalypse, but I, I didn't, never actually got around to watching the whole thing. Yes, the Ray Meland frogs film where everything attacks them apart from frogs in the last scene. <laughs> yeah, the frogs just sort of turn up after everyone's already done the job. Yeah, that is such a bizarre movie. Like, wh why even call them frogs? I don't understand it. Because just such. My a cousin Jerry's got a whole truckload of frogs. You want, you want to use them for something? <laughs> Strangely enough, I stumbled into 10 minutes of Food of the Gods again the other day and just laughed as uh, giant rats seem to take an incredibly long time to eat people. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know how you keep stumbling across this film. I, th this is not how television works in North America. We have episodes of Gilmore Girls, and mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe they keep showing, like, ice pirates, and that, that's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Cellar Dwellers on, a, on, on again tomorrow. I've never seen that film for 30 years, and now it'll be twice in three Magnificent months. Magnificent son of a bitch. You brought up Ice Pirates, and I met uh, Robert Urich when I used to do security <laughs> at a high-end <laughs> high uh, hotel um, here in Vancouver. I met all kinds of people, but Robert Urich was a guest uh, before he, obviously, before he passed away, but... Um, he was telling me that he was off to Italy after filming the movie that he was doing to take a, uh, a cooking course from some famous chef. I can't remember the guy's oh, wow. name. But that was one of his hobbies. I used to just chat all these guys up just for fun. Like Christopher Walken came out one time. He was going to go for a run. Oh, okay. uh, and he was, <laughs> he was wearing, you know, a black sweatshirt. But he, he, he was wearing just regular slacks that were too short for him and, and loafers and a hat. And I said, oh, Mr. Walken, where are you off to? He's, I'm going for a run. And, 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 and I said, well, what's with the hat? It's a disguise. No notes. Yep. Leave. Dravo Park sits along the Great Miami River and is one of many parks my town has to offer. It used to be my favourite place because we could walk our dog Charlie there and since it was a city park, we could also use the boat ramps. I say could because after what happened, I'll never go back there. My partner Billy and I were taking Charlie for a walk in the baseball field. He was a rescue and we were reintroducing him to new situations, people, smells and so on. We walked the entire tree line down to the water and then back to my car the same way. Now, whenever I get out of my car, I always attach my keys to my belt because otherwise I have a bad habit of just setting things down. Well, guess what? We get back to the car and there are no keys on my belt. It was starting to get dark, so Billy quickly walked the tree line three full times and while he was doing that, I sat on the ground with Charlie right in front of my car. Billy couldn't find the keys and I was starting to make plans for a pickup when he walked to the driver's side door, opened it and let Charlie in. I stood up to see what the hell was going on, just in time to see Billy put the car key out of the door lock. Just the car key. Charlie began to growl and bark. As for Billy, he looked baffled and I was equally confused. Where the hell had the rest of the keys gone? Just then, I felt as if someone had walked up right behind me and I heard a voice whisper in my ear. 
it said one word. Leave. I looked behind me, and even though I knew no one would be there, and of course there wasn't, we left immediately. I mean, that seems like the way to go. No, leaving? Yep. Yep. I feel no <laughs> compelling yep. reason to stick around. Go. Again, I have another security story to tell you regarding this particular Please. story. I worked at Vancouver Hospital as a security guard, and I was being trained there. And the nurse's residence was this uh, 11-story abandoned building, other than a few offices on the, on the main floor. It was an abandoned building uh, that essentially stood on the campus for years and years. While I was being trained, the security supervisor told me that when he entered this one particular room one evening, he opened the door and he felt something blow into his ear as Ugh. though, you know, there was someone standing on his shoulder and just blew into his ear and he turned and there's nothing there. But he said, so ever since then, whenever the route is up for grabs, he always assigns it to someone else and never to himself because he was just terrified to go in there alone. So he was saying, he was essentially telling me, Mike, this is your route now. And, uh, and I had some interesting experiences on various floors of that particular place. Like, for example, one night I go up to the library in the very top floor and all these dusty old books, no one ever used it, and turned the lights on, looked around the place, and on the way out, you always turn the lights off and lock the door. That's, that's the chain of events that always happens. So the second time I'm through the route, as the elevator doors open to the top floor, the lights are on in the library. Oh, no. I'm the only one on the entire campus with the keys to get into that particular library. So how on earth are the lights Ooh. on? So I have to go into this library all by my lonesome, my little shaky little self and walk through this library looking to see if anybody is in there. It was so terrifying. Hello, hello. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, the nurses res had notorious uh, haunted things around it, and it wasn't anybody saying leave, but it was, you know, people said they felt things in there, like always somebody beside them or behind them. Interesting. I mean, do, do you know much about the history of the building? In terms of like any, I mean, I, we don't like to connect death to these things because it doesn't necessarily be, a, there's not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation, but I'm kind of curious to know if there is any like intense history there. No, it was just a, a residence for nurses who were attending the nursing school at Vancouver Hospital because it's a teaching school. So, oh, okay. um, or it used to be, I think now UBC is the, is the teaching school here uh, on this coast, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. So don't quote me on that, but the nurse's res was just no longer used. And perhaps there were some horrible things that happened there that nobody really ever talked about. Interesting, man. So how long were you working security? I did it for two years. I did all kinds of different places. Riverview was part of what I had to see. And uh, the old Woodlands campus where it was also uh, an institution for psychiatric patients at one time and was also the institution at which uh, Acid Al did all his uh, Hollywood sanitarium LSD experiments on people like Cary Grant and things like that. So I'm not familiar with this at all. There's an episode of Dark Poutine on it. I'm plugging my show. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you listen to my Acid Al 
episode. It's one of my very early episodes. I might be redoing it, but it's it's a pretty fascinating story that uh, essentially people who were suffering from addiction, especially alcoholism, were set, sent to this place called Hollywood Sanita- Sanitarium, and they were treated with LSD to help them to uh, overcome their addictions. So there's some very, very strange coinkydinks around that particular building and those buildings. Interesting. Wasn't there someone in Montreal mm-hmm. doing, those, doing uh, acid yep. experimentation as well? I did an episode on that as well. <laughs> yeah. And there's also the, uh, the uh, Saskatchewan prairies also had some involvement in that. And these also have tangentially and directly uh, involvement in MK Ultra. So it's really, really fascinating that right, right. MK Ultra experiments were essentially done on Canadian soil. I think that's how, the, how I read about it. Because I read uh, there was a book called The Devil's Chessboard about mm-hmm. the life of Alan Dulles. Mm-hmm. And I, I, seem like the, I seem to recall them talking about MK Ultra in regard to Montreal. Because I think I was living in Montreal at the time. So it was yep. kind of a trip to, uh, to hear that this had gone on, you know, a few blocks away from my apartment. Yeah, it's really fascinating. There's, there's a lot of uh, crazy connections to uh, MKUltra in Canada and that kind of thing. So I know I'm kind of curious, where do you guys stand on this? Because obviously MKUltra was a real thing, but now the degree to which it was a real thing, there seems to be some manner of debate. Because some people, obviously we, we know what we know. Some people think there was much more and the records were destroyed. Some people think there's even more than that. Where, where do you guys stand on that? What do you think? Because I, I, I know a little bit, but I don't know what you guys know. I mean, uh, we, we know what we've been told, right? Like, it's that whole idea that, you know, we're never told the entire truth. But I don't want to fall down that conspiracy rabbit hole and, and think, oh, no, we're, we're still being fed something and, you know, lied to. And I mean, we are. If you watch the news or ever watch an ad, you're, you're being lied to every time <laughs> yeah. you watch those things or listen to that. But I don't know. I really don't know like how involved they were. Uh, look at Errol Morris's uh, miniseries on Netflix, Wormwood. Oh, uh, yeah. It was a real look at that. And, and you're not really sure, did the, uh, did the man who was involved in those experiments, did he die by suicide or was he flung from the window? Was he defenestrated by some dark people in in? bad hats from that era yeah that was was that was frank olson i believe so yes yeah yeah i'm with paul on this one yeah he was murdered yeah i i believe so as well i don't think even if he did the deed himself it was uh, a matter of convincing him that that was probably the best chain of events to follow yes i mean obviously the fact that he suffered severe head trauma that wasn't connected to the fall, I think, suggests that. And also the other person that was in the room woke up to find him missing and didn't hear him leap out of it. I mean, because he allegedly leapt through the the full window, didn't he? And that didn't wake you up? <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, I've had some deep sleeps in my time, but that's, that's pushing it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, as with anything, I think, as Mike says there, you've got to be careful, cause, and especially as with anything, you only have to compare it to some of the mm-hmm. myths built up about the Philadelphia experiment that you'll always get a lot mm-hmm. of people who come forward saying, oh, yes, I was part of this program. 
and we were searching for aliens on Mars or we were looking for Brezhnev's hideout in Russia and such like. And a lot of these people that come forward don't really seem to know any more than what's easily sourceable. But as with anything, the American government has a very interesting history in regards to certain things that it will tantalise the public with by going, well, yeah, actually, actually we've, we did right. do that. Yeah. I know we said we didn't for decades, but we did. And by doing that, they just hope people stop asking questions. So I think it's, they've admitted they did it, but I still don't think we know the full picture of exactly how much work went into it because they clearly spent a lot of money on it. Because redacted and redacted did redacted with redacted. Precisely. I I think that's, as you're saying, that's kind of the danger, right? Because conspiracies happen all the time. But I think it's hard not to let ourselves slide into that, well, if if X is true, then Y and Z must also be true. You know, I I was thinking about this with, um, well, like with, for example, all these conspiracy theories around COVID. I want to be careful because I know algorithms will snap the shit up and I don't need a copy, I don't need a strike. But like, you know, this idea that it was like lab made in a lab, you know, I've had people tell me this. And I know there was some investigation done to determine if that was the case. But the thing is, even if it was the result of experimentation with whatever, okay, then what? But to so many people, that means X, Y, and Z, if X is true, then Y and Z have to also be true. And then it gets into all this crazy shit. And there were conspiracies around this stuff, right? There was government mismanagement. There was all kinds of people who tried to kind of hush up how bad it was so they could keep the, you know, keep the wheels of commerce going. But because one thing is true, it does not mean that you know, this was an Illuminati plot to reduce the population, but it's so no. hard. And, and it's, it, you kind of end up in that situation where you, you're sort of agreeing with people you really don't like, you know? Right. And then, then you have the flu trucks clan on the other side who, you know, are just essentially, it didn't happen at all and we didn't need to shut down. Yeah. So yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's really hard because you, you have to say like, well, this one thing might be true. These other things are not. We're at such an all or nothing point in the world. Or at least in, in you know in sort of in, in North America, there's no room for nuance no. anymore. Like we don't want to sort of go down that road a little too far right now. We were joking about my own personal heritage before we uh, we came on, and it, and it's a scary time for people like myself who you don't want to give an opinion on anything right now because like am I going to fall on the wrong side of history because I've been uneducated about something? Oh, yeah. I mean, the entire situation, well, anything currently happening in the world, we try and stay out of on the show just because we're, like, we're not equipped. Killing innocent people is bad. That's where, I, that's where I stand. But the as for the nuance of that situation, that is beyond the scope of this show and this podcaster, if I'm honest. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Definitely. But how about Christopher Walken in jogging pants? Oh, <laughs> he was such a nice man, though. He was really, really nice. Yeah. I, I met, I also met uh, Henry Winkler oh, cool. uh, at that particular place. And, and his first words to me were, uh, began with an F and ended with a K. And uh, okay. <laughs> it was essentially, he couldn't figure out how the mag lock worked with the card. And so I had to go and help him in. And he just looked at me and that was the first word he ever said to me. And it was like, well, I guess he's actually not really the Fonz in, in real life because that wouldn't have been a problem for the Fonz. <laughs> hey. Yeah, exactly. He would have just bonked it and it would have opened for him. I bet if you had said <laughs> anything about the Fonz to him in that moment, he would have jumped inside you and blown you from the inside out like Shang Tsung. Just explode, just right. exploded he, you, just stopped your, ripped your heart out like Mola Ram. 
I did not, and he gave me a tip later on, so for helping him up to his That tip room. was for not bringing up the goddamn fonts. <laughs> That's what that was for. Well, I bought the I bought the artist's way with the tip that Henry Winkler gave me, so the book <laughs> The Artist's Way, which I've never finished. <laughs> but. The Flame. A few months ago, my boyfriend and I were working Uber Eats together around midnight. Orders started to dry up, so we pulled into the parking lot of an empty suburban jack-in-the-box to wait for the end of our shift. This suburb is on the edge of a forest, so we were parked probably 15 feet from the tree line, from which we could see a little walking trail leading into the woods. That's where I think it came from. We both saw a huge, flickering flame, probably three feet tall, only a few inches wide, like a tall, giant candle flame, floating directly in front of some of the trees. It was just about three feet over the dirt from where the parking lot ends and the trail begins. It was clearly a flame, flickering and burning, but it did not look like anything in particular was on fire. It was just floating in front of some trees. It disappeared really quickly, probably 30 seconds after it first appeared. We were spooked for a few minutes until I worked up the courage to walk over to where the flame had been. I could see pretty clearly, as the trees were sparse up until maybe 30 feet into the woods. There was no one there, no ash, nothing that had been on fire. Absolutely nothing. Stepping away from the story for a sec, we were talking in the break about Whitley Streeper and communion. And I was saying that uh, I think that what Whitley is describing sounds to me like consciousness experiences, which is to say, you know, this idea that your certain abduction experiences are in fact happening to you on a psychic level. They're, they're not necessarily your body being taken. Uh, if anything, I think it is, it is sort of your etheric body, your spirit body being taken, you know, and, and as I mentioned, and I've talked about this a million times on the show before, but uh, in, the book, in the book Psychic Self-Defense by Dion Fortune, she talks about how your etheric body can, can go places while you yourself remain stationary while you're sleeping, right? Mm -hmm. And she says, she claims that wounds inflicted on that body will then be evident on the physical form. And you actually found that really upsetting, Mike. Yeah. Uh, I, f I felt a little bit of panic in my chest when we were talking about that. And it, it brought up some things that I haven't really thought about much for a long time. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to, uh, as I was falling asleep, I used to feel these sort of like electrical shocks throughout my entire body, but they would be sort of centered in my head somewhere. And it would be just like, it felt like zzz, like a, a buzzing or a, a really sharp electrical shock. Uh, it wasn't entirely unpleasant, but it was unexpected whenever it happened. And it was usually just as I was at that place right before I drifted into sleep, but I could feel essentially that if I wasn't careful, I would leave and go somewhere, if that makes any sense. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So I've studied a little bit of like Robert Monroe's uh, experiences with uh, astral travel and things like that, and have recently been uh, doing some experiments personally with lucid dreaming. So, and I have been successful on at least two occasions and had some really, really fascinating things. But that whole idea that we can be psychically injured and, and have that 
manifest on our body somewhere, it resonates with me in a big way, and I'm not entirely sure why. I've got some strange anxiety that I'm not entirely sure what it's about or what it's connected to. I'm I'm a little terrified to go have a look because I've been reading like John E. Mack's book, Abduction, and, and things like that. Like, I'm not saying that that particular thing has happened to me, and but people have suggested that I should go try some hypnotic regression and that kind of stuff. I'm not sure how much credence I give any of that stuff, but uh, there is definitely something not right with me when it comes to these kind of things. And, and so once when this topic comes up, I start to feel very, very uncomfortable. But it's not uncomfortable to the point where I don't want to investigate it. Like, I'm, I'm sick of feeling it so much that now it's like, you know what? I, I felt I've avoided this enough for one lifetime. Maybe it's time for me to really dive in and figure out what it is that's going on. What, it, what am I so afraid of? I know I grew up fearing death, so. I mean, sometimes I think it, it takes identifying that fear and, and like the origin of it to be able to dispel it. Because I, I had this thing when I was younger. If I heard metal crashing sound, I would start to panic that it was the end of the world, which sounds nuts. But I, I finally, a therapist actually made a connection for me. And that was that when I was a kid, I was in two separate car wrecks oh, with yeah. my dad. Mm. And one of which was his fault and, and one which wasn't. But the therapist said to me, they said, well, I mean, that seems significant, does it not? Like, you know, this is, you were, you were being protected. You were safe. You were with someone who was supposed to be looking after you. And all of a sudden, because uh, the first one was, was his fault because he wasn't paying attention. And the whole world changed. And the second time it happened, I was with my sister, you know, and I, I, that time I remember we got hit from the side and I just remember spinning around. Oh, wow. And I, I, I was covered in glass and it was just, it was, yeah, it was just very, very fast, but it wasn't until we kind of dove into that. Uh, I mean, I hesitate to say these, the word trauma, cause I feel like it, it's kind of overused now, but it was kind of took diving into that memory to identify the trigger. And I think you kind of have to do that sometimes, which it's, it's not easy. But I think it's important work. There's a really great book called The Body Keeps the Score uh, that I read recently where that talks about that. And if, if trauma is not a word that you want to use that you think is overused, I, I kind of don't. Like, I think that maybe that's a good way to identify it. Maybe the, the weight of that word in social media and that kind of thing at this time in history is a little strange. But that is really, I think, what it is. Like, uh, there is something that my body is holding on to that it doesn't want to let go of that always manifests itself physically in the way I think, feel, and act, which is interesting. But what I found has helped me get to the point where I can identify it and see it for what it is, which is just a feeling, even though it's an awful feeling, is meditation. I meditate 20 minutes every day, sit still, listen to my breathing, and I have found that that has gotten me to a place where, oh, okay, so I, I can sit with that feeling in a way that I've never been able to before. Whereas, you know, I, I mean, like I say, I've, I'm very sort of candid about it. I've had problems with alcohol and drugs in my life, and, and that was how I used to solve that problem, solve the, that awful feeling, was to run away from it with those things. And, uh, and now it's a matter of like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling this thing. What behavior, rather than indulge in an, an addictive behavior, 
let's have a look at this, let's investigate it and maybe feel it and move through it. Uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to figure out what exactly it is, what that core thing is. And, you know, maybe I don't need to know, but perhaps the feeling of it and feeling through it is the healthiest thing. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's always the more valuable thing and the, the, the better thing to do is to feel a feeling as opposed to trying not to. I don't, I don't even know if you cannot feel something. I think if you're having that emotion, you know, because I think sometimes we try to rationalize these things, right? And even myself, like, I'm an angry, angry person. So sometimes I'll have anger about shit. I, I got no reason to be angry about this. This is stupid. Why am, I, why am I upset about this? But I think you have to kind of let it come and then let it go. Right. I've never been good at that in my, my whole life. Feelings, feelings are not, a, not something that I, I enjoyed at all as a kid. So when I found, you know, booze at 14, I was just like, oh, finally, I have a solution to this thing called life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but but I had to give it up when I was 23 because my solution had essentially boomeranged on me and was killing me. So, you know, I had I was jaundiced and I I should have been doing uh, anatomy presentations at university because my I knew exactly where my liver was because it was sticking out and it hurt. Oh so, my god. Oh yeah, I was in bad shape. I was in really bad shape. There was a lot more than booze going on, but it was uh it was not a not a good time. I was, I was on the way out in one way or the other. So yeah, I gave it up when I was 23 and here I am 31 years later and still trying to recover. <laughs> I know I've definitely had these sort of experiences where I get this feeling sometimes and you guys might have, have some variation of this, but it starts out as a really positive emotion. And like this, it's almost like this spreading sense of wonder and like connection and excitement. And it can be brought on by anything, but quite often it's associated with certain times of day. So like, uh, I remember one time I had it, I was at a friend's house and I was actually, I think she was living in Coquitlam at the time and the sun was setting and it was just perfect. It was just, I don't know, there's something about the moment. I just felt like connected to everything. What I found is that feeling can sometimes slide into really black depression. And it's, it's interesting. It's like, being on a, it's like being on a glass tabletop and the tabletop is shifting. And so what I would do when that would happen, and I distinctly remember I, I left her house and I, I caught the, tr the train back to town and I went, I went and got drunk because that seemed to kind of even it out. It's, it's kind of interesting how we resort to those things, right? We sort of like, well, this will just, this won't fix it. This won't help explain why I have this feeling. All I know is I will, it will, I will stop feeling it. Right. <laughs> right. We've talked about Brennan, you and I have talked about it a bit. I've been dealing with depression as uh, a thing for my entire life, essentially, as long as I can remember. And, and sometimes I just go into a deep, dark hole and people think, oh, Mike doesn't like me or something because he's not responding. But it's not. It's not any of that. Like, it's just like I am incapable of coming out of my cave at that particular time. Just, I don't know if it's indulgent or whatever, but it is not a fun place to be. It just, you can't see a way out when you're there. I was hospitalized for it when I was 20. I've been in one of those places where the door handles are on the other side of the yes. door. So, you know, yeah. it, and if I want to go out for a cigarette, I had to have two nurses with me kind of thing. <laughs> like, I can't even go outside on my own, but, uh, but yeah, uh, it, was, uh, it was not a fun time. I know a bit of darkness. 
And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by all the dark things that I'm into. It's because I've been down those paths psychically, you know? I want to kind of understand them and, and show people that, yeah, just because you've been there doesn't mean that you have to live there and it doesn't have to destroy you because it hasn't destroyed me like it has some of my friends. You know, I've, I, I have a lot of friends who have died from this stuff, so. Yeah, well, you're in good company, Mike. Welcome aboard. There you go. We're all a bit cuckoo bird. <laughs> We're all a bit cuckoo bird. But I think I think that you know people who listen to shows like this show and your other shows and and my show, we all have a little bit of that inside us. I think that's why we're all so comfortable together. I think if you really look at the people who you you kind of are comfortable with, I, I think you find those kinds of threads, right? Even if you're not necessarily aware of it, you know, like, oh, maybe we don't like the same things, but there's something that just kind of brings us together. And maybe because I'm kind of neurospicy, I notice this shit, but I'm always fascinated by people who are trying to like really reach outside their sort of, not friend group, but my, it's like their, com their, their comfort zone, I guess. They're like, whatever you want to call it, you know, they, like they, they want to say, for example, guys who want to get to know X girl. And like, there, there's absolutely nothing that connects you to this person. There's no, you know, like you guys have nothing in common. There's like, to me, I, and I, I don't, maybe again, maybe this is just a depression, but like I have this very well curated sense of, of who I should be speaking to and who I shouldn't. Mm. Like I might look across a room at someone and be like, oh, that person looks like uh, an interesting person. Like I, I somehow I know that I don't have anything to say to them or they to me. Well, I mean, I, I thought I was quite good at that myself, but I got taken in by some, Brennan, we've talked about this before as well, but. I, I thought somebody else was safe and they weren't, so. Well, I, I guess safe, I don't mean safe necessarily, but, like, but there is some kind of connection there. Because even with the people you and I have spoken about, there was a connection. Mm -hmm. Oh, it definitely. Was just a bad, it was just a bad connection. Right. It, it connected yeah. to, the, to the darker parts of myself. Uh, like it was like uh, the places that needed healing still, that person connected to in a way that uh, essentially used them against me. You know? Yeah, yeah, and often you don't realize what's going on until it's too late, right? Yeah, or oh, you're yeah. so far down the road with them where you know everything is so intertwined. And yes, I've had that happen numerous times in my life. And just these past few years, I feel like I'm exercising that demon in a in a way like I never have before. And and it's not like those other people have a, a lot less to play, a lot less of a part to play in it than I actually play. You know, it's it's all about me and my reactions. It has nothing to do with them. They're going to do their thing no matter who they're with. It has nothing to do with them. It is up to me to figure out, okay, what is it in me that was attracting that particular kind of person? And I think I've done a lot of counseling and those kind of things and a little bit of healing around that. And funnily enough, some of those kinds of people have just fallen away in my life. They're not there anymore. I don't know why I don't have a relationship with that person anymore, but I just don't. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Well, funny enough, I, I just did an, I was editing an episode of Host Adventures, which is one of the patron shows I do, where I kind of talk about my life. And I, I had this moment where I was saying, I don't know if I should cut this or not, because it's a little too real. But, you know, I said that I don't have a lot of friends anymore. And that's partially, well, I think largely because I kind of, 
stepped back and, and realized my worth as a person. I thought, and this is really just something that's happened in the last couple of years, but I was like, no, you know what? I don't, I don't need this kind of bullshit in my life. You know, I, I don't need, like it was friends support each other. That's what they do. Right. But it occurred to me that I was spending time with people who wanted to be miserable <laughs> and what they wanted out of me was to validate that misery and be miserable with them. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. I uh, like, I'm, I'm done with that. Like th- I'm 54 years old now. If I've got 25 years left, it's probably going to be a good time, you know, but yeah. I, I want to make sure I make the best of that time that I have left, you know? Uh, I, I definitely have spent enough time on the other side of the tracks, you know, commiserating. And, and I really don't want to anymore. Like, I've got this great life now that has blown me away. Like, what? Uh, you know, I've said it a, a billion times, like, how did I get here? How did mm-hmm. I get to the point where I can do what you, you guys, what we're doing right here? And I, you know, I'm able to have a roof over my head, a pretty nice roof over my head with two kitties that love me. And, you know, like, uh, I do okay. And here I thought I was just destined for the toilet my entire life, you know? And it was all because the world outside me had this conspired against me and all this kind of stuff. No, it was all between my ears, interestingly. All of it was between my ears. The Cougar. So last night, my partner was woken abruptly by the feeling of being watched. During a later discussion, he told me that it was around 5am when he'd woken up and felt drawn to go look out of our office window, which is a room over from our bedroom. For context, we live in a two-bedroom apartment which is on the ground level. He pulled apart the blinds and looked out towards the parking lot, and he saw what he describes as a medium-sized black mass about the size of a Labrador, and in fact I thought it might have been a black lab sitting in the parking lot. But it was the fact that it remained stationary for over 15 minutes that was worrisome to say the least. The top part of it would move occasionally in unnatural yet organic movements that could have been perceived as a head turning this way and that, but it had an undulating aspect to the way it moved, if that makes any sense. After 15 minutes of gazing out at this black mass, he finally came back to our bedroom, at which time I woke up unnerved and asked him what the matter was. He had a worried look on his face, so I was already concerned, but then he told me, Can you come and look at something for me? Just come look. I was thinking maybe something was wrong in our apartment, so I quickly got up and stumbled to the office with him, asking him what was wrong the whole way. He asked me to pull apart the blinds and look out towards the parking lot. Just look straight ahead, and then asked me if I'd seen that black thing next to the snowbank. Sleep deprived and without my glasses on, I squinted and looked straight past the black mass towards the distance before finally asking, Oh, that big black thing right between the cars. There were two vehicles parked right in front of our office window and this mass was positioned smack dab between them in the distance. By all means, it was directly positioned to face our office window. I probably spent another three seconds looking at it before I felt uneasy enough to push the blinds back to where they once were, and tell my partner we should try to go back to bed and just ignore it. 
But in all honesty, it wasn't because I thought it was nothing. It was mostly because I'd had goosebumps everywhere after just a few seconds of looking at this mass. And the small voice in the back of my head that said, Do not get your glasses. You don't want to see this thing in HD. That was enough to make me want to get the hell away from the window. About half an hour after the incident, I thought I saw a cat run past my legs and into our bedroom. The thing that tipped me off about the fact that it wasn't our cat was that it was the same tan yellow colour as a cougar, and also that my fiancé was holding our cat for comfort out in the living room while he tried to de-escalate his nerves. I didn't think that the two incidents were related in any way until the nightmares began. As for the nightmares, for three nights after the incident I had relentless night terrors. They got so bad that I tried to avoid going to sleep and started feeling scared to look outside after nightfall. I also started waking up in a cold sweat at 5am. On the third night of having nightmares, I dreamt of a half-cougar, half-man creature crawling out from under my side of the bed and snarling at me. It had the jowls, teeth and tongue of a cat, but the rest of the body was a very muscular man. When it screamed at me, it sounded like what I can only describe as a mix between a cougar cry and the sounds Mama made in that movie. The sound was jarring enough that I woke up out of a dead sleep and refused to go back down. Not till the sun started to come up did I feel safe in closing my eyes again. That one really interested me. But one of the biggest things is that this is not the first time we've heard stories of half-human, half-animal nightmare creatures, both in dreams and in waking life. And I'm just, I don't know, something about that fascinates me. And I, I think, you know, I've talked about this before. This goes back to an old nightmare of mine when I was a kid where I saw what was like kind of like a half lion, half man. And I thought it was a dream. I, I still kind of assume it had to have been a dream. But then we had a listener who was awake and they saw what they recall being half tiger, half man, uh, sort of menacing them. And in, in, in my experience, this lion man thing also menaced me. So it, it, I don't think it ever actually wanted to hurt me, but I think it, in the dream, it liked scaring me. It enjoyed my fear. And so whenever this comes up, I can't help but kind of um, go back to that and kind of want to explore it a little bit. Have you ever heard anything like this, Mike? Uh, I've heard something like really? that, and I have had an experience, which is oh. interesting. Yeah, last year, uh, Morgan, Morgan and I were... Uh, invited to a property in outside of Edmonton, Alberta. And so I traveled there. It was wintertime. It was around this time of year. So there was a lot of snow and that kind of stuff. And uh, these people claimed that on their property, they had what they considered, both of them were of indigenous heritage, by the way. And they had claimed that they had seen a dog man uh, who they named Snoopy for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why they decided to name Snoopy, uh, the dog man Snoopy, but they did. And uh, I don't recall us seeing anything. Like we walked through the woods, there was a group of us and I had my uh, GoPro 360 Max recording everything. It was just like a, f like really interesting and, and fun to hear their stories and that kind of thing. But that evening as night fell, we were there probably until around midnight that night and walking the property outside 
at night was you felt like something was not right. And it was it was just a feeling at first. And we heard like a yowl, like this person mentioned. It sounded sort of human, but not. That's when I noticed at the end of the driveway, right on the edge of the uh, property line, which the woman who owns the property said that she had essentially done some rituals that would protect us, you know, from anything outside the property. But I could see this black mass moving back and forth in like as though it was pacing, trying to figure out a way past whatever it was, like this invisible barrier or whatever it was. And I'm not sure if it was my eyes playing tricks on me or what, but I saw something out there that was, it was this amorphous black shadowy shape that was just moving behind uh, the tree line, just right inside the tree line so I could barely see it. And like I say, I don't know if it was floaters in my eyes or something like that, but it felt like something perhaps was malevolent out there and was not, it did not have our best interests in, in mind. And when uh, we turned back toward the house, part of me didn't want to let that thing out of my sight and to, you know, to let it fade away as I walked backwards kind of things. Once I couldn't see it anymore, the feeling of fear went away. But yeah, that is so I've had my own experience like this. This is why as Paul was reading this story, my eyes got really big because holy smokes, that sounds exactly what it was like what it was. And it was about the size of a black Labrador retriever kind of thing. So I don't know. And so what I mean, you said they were seeing a dog man. What was sort of the nature of, of what they were experiencing? Was it just I see a, a dog man and that's it? Or w- oh. were they interacting with this thing? They said that they had interacted with him, that uh, the husband of the family, he didn't believe in it for a long time. It was uh, the wife and a daughter had seen this thing multiple times around the property until one night he decided he needed to go out for a drive and um, he, went, he was going to pick something up and he had a, a pickup truck. And when he went out to the pickup truck, this thing was standing with its hind legs in the bed of the truck and its front legs on the top on the cab of the truck and staring at him. And so he said he turned on his heel and he went back into the house and he said to his wife, uh, this thing that you and our daughter have claimed to seen is out there standing in the back of my truck staring at me and I don't want to go anywhere. So that, that is how like they saw this thing and they, Morgan also told me about um, other visits that she had to that particular place where they saw eyes in the darkness uh, where there shouldn't have been any eyes. So, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things, like, are people seeing what they really think that they're seeing, or are we concocting an exper- experience in our own pumpkins? You know, like, is this something that... I wanted to see maybe something out on that property line. Did I, did I create something in my mind, some psychic thing in my mind that I saw something that wasn't really there? So, like, I don't know. I don't know if what I saw was real. All I know is what I thought I saw with my eyes. 
and I didn't put any particular shape to it because I didn't know what I was looking at. So yeah, that it goes back to the last conversation that we had about, you know, Whitley Strieber and, and is this a psychic thing? That's what I lean toward. I lean toward it's something that is in me, you know, that creates this event that I see in particular. Interesting. Did you have any kind of lingering after effects? Did you have dreams or, or anything like that? Nope. Zero things. Just this memory, uh, you know, and, and Morgan and I talked about it. She said she saw the same thing. So uh, that, that, that's interesting as well. I wasn't the only one that evening to see it. We all talked about it. So I don't, I was the first one to bring it up. So I don't know if people were just humoring me or, you know, what was going on. But I, I said, I see something out there and explained what it is and where it was. And other people said that they saw the same thing. So take that for what, what you will. I don't know whether or not someone was pulling my leg or anything like that, but. I mean, it seems a very involved prank to get someone to hop on an hour long, hour and a half long flight. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. To, to have them go and see something. And the indigenous population have enough trouble with people thinking they're full of nonsense without performing for, for visitors, Mike. So uh, I'm interested that it, it seemed to be sort of hanging around where the ritual had been carried as though it was barred from either manifesting fully or entering. Well, that's what this woman said. She said, yeah, I can't, don't worry, it can't get to us. Like, it, it can't hurt us because of, you know, the protection that she fancies herself a bit of a shaman. I don't know, you know, whether, whether that's a fact or whatever, but, but that's what she said. So There is a uh, First Nations ritual in regards to that kind of situation. So I, it's not the first time I've heard of, of someone being able to create that kind of barrier around a property that needs to be protected from from that particular type of entity as well yeah like i mean i've i've dove into the wendigo and and things like that as well that's that's a whole fascinating thing but uh, the dogman seems to be making a really a, a bit of a splash in paranormal lore ever since uh, skinwalker ranch i guess and whether or not that's actually a real thing is another whole ball of wax. But I see, I see Brendan, Brendan rolling his eyes. <laughs> Mr. Skeptic over here. Well, it's happening over here as well. A friend of mine, as, as I mentioned earlier, Paul Sinclair has recently released his documentary Wolflands, which is basically about lots of people in East Yorkshire who are having encounters with some kind of bipedal wolf creature which we know can't possibly be because it's not in the fossil record and we haven't had wild wolves in the United Kingdom for 350, 400 years. The biggest natural predator, allegedly, officially, that's supposed to exist here is the badger. Regardless of what we think about the alien big cat phenomenon, that once again, people are seeing that. Some of the reports and the witnesses he's spoken to in that have had very disturbing and compelling encounters with things that shouldn't exist. So what's going on? Why are these people seeing it? And, and they say it looks like a dogman, not a werewolf. And it's, I don't know, it's just, why is this going on? But then when you look at the story and we're talking about half man, half cat-like creatures, then obviously that refers back to the Eastern European traditions of weir cats who are sort of 
the overlooked member of the uh, the weir family. But then you have that in Africa. They, they have stories of weir hyenas in certain countries in Africa. And sort of, obviously, you even have to look at ancient Egypt and you've got Anubis. Um, we, we go back to p- stories of the dog-headed men in ancient Greece. So there's always been this kind of mixture of, of creatures that you would think, and they, you would think, well, what, you know, as, as we've grown as, as a culture and we've become more aware of the world around us and we've got better weapons and better fencing and we're able to secure properties more, surely the dogman or the werewolf or whatever it should be something cast away back into the past, whereas they're not the most dangerous predator out there. You know, it, especially for you guys in Canada, yeah, the bear would be, yeah, you know, I mean, obviously after Sasquatch. So, um, and I know you recently survived a, a a meeting with a Sasquatch, Mike. So um, it's very interesting for me that it's still so pervasive. And yet, why is it happening in First Nation culture? Why is it happening in American tribal law? Why does the peoples in Africa have it? Why is it in East Europe? These are cultures that aren't... They didn't have a symbiotic relationship. These people haven't influenced each other. And yet they all have these stories and these traditions about such creatures. Why? It's, fasc- it's fascinating. And this is, this is what we're exploring all the time on Supernatural Circumstances. This is exactly what we talk about. There's so many different things that people claim to see. And, and it's funny how congruent they are. Mm. You know, like people who have no connection to one another will have seen things that are similar. And what is that? That Jungian idea that, you know, there is a collective consciousness that we all share, uh, that, you know, we all have this sort of shared insanity as well, maybe, shared hallucinations that we lean toward. Or is there something else that we're unable to see? Is there, are there other interdimensional things that aren't, uh, we're not aware of fully yet that are starting to make themselves evident mm. in a way. Mm. And there's always this concept yeah, you know. of what, as well that in the vast majority of these en- encounters with the dog-faced creatures, whatever they are, that there always seems to be a feeling of threat without it actually becoming a physical reality, which I've always found interesting as though there's a maliciousness and a sort of malignant personality that they like to frighten people without actually doing anything. Just their very presence is enough to scare people. And for them, from some of the reports, you, you, you talk about people thinking that, that it's smiling at them when it realises how frightened they are. Mm-hmm. So, it sounds like the, some of the bad people I know. Yeah, I was just thinking that. But, yep. but then again, we've also got the whole worldwide phenomenon of shucks which are very different creatures, but people describe these as large dogs. They don't describe them as large wolves. The black shook, yeah. But, I mean, I was never aware that there's a whole range of sightings in in North America of shooks, which are very different to wolves or werewolves or coyotes or dogmen or whatever. I mean, Kevin Lee Nelson's done a lot of work, as I'm sure Morgan's aware, Mike. And obviously he's currently finalising his, his book on, on such things because there's a lot of trucks, truckers that have a, a real belief and a, and a folklore and a history of sightings of these malicious black dogs all over and are often seen as a portent of bad luck or an accident awaiting. And I wasn't aware that there was any tradition of that kind of thing in North America. Yeah, I, I wrote about a black shook in my book, my upcoming book. <laughs> which is interesting that you would bring that up. 
in Caledonian Mills, Nova Scotia, a part of what is considered to be a poltergeist event, a, a fire spook is what she ended up being called, but there was uh, evidence of a black shook or events that involved this black dog showing up in the home during weird events and, you know, walking through the kitchen and leaving through the uh, open front door and no one knew whose dog this was kind of thing. <laughs> what? Where did this thing come from? But uh, strange and dark events followed. Uh, the the old lady of the house died the next day after this black shook made itself known. Mm, that's that's very similar. There was a there was a case here in the UK in in the northeast of England in a little town called Hexham where a pair of heads were discovered by a couple of schoolboys mucking about in a garden. People began to say, oh, they're, they're some kind of ancient Celtic symbol. Nobody could really get down to it. Somebody claimed that he'd made it. And it's one of those rare examples where somebody comes up with a rational ex- explanation and they say, OK, then do it. And they were crap. So they knew it wasn't him. He just wanted to interject himself into this story. But one of the strange aspects of all that was that the heads were given to an expert in Celtic symbolism and statues. And while she had the heads in her house, both her and her daughter had an encounter with a werewolf-like creature on their landing. Mm, Wow. And then the day after, she took the heads back and said, I don't want those in my house anymore. Yeah, yeah, you can keep those heads. (laughs) I don't need them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they're still a mystery. Nobody knows what they are. They know that I think they're made out of concrete, but they just appeared and nobody really knows why. And it's all a bit strange. It's very strange. There's lots of other things. I think the next door neighbours... To, the, to one of the lads who had them were also, they started having poltergeist activities in their house and people kept seeing the shadow of a large dog-like creature inside. But they described it more mm-hmm. as a werewolf. That reminds me of um, a little bit of a story. I think this is something I told the show a long time ago, but I used to know a woman, very level-headed gal, you know, she was a very successful businesswoman. Sometimes she would have strange things happen. And on this one occasion, she had taken her kids out to this place. I think it's called Whiff and Spit. It's, um, I know. <laughs> oh, dear. It's, uh... Hey, I'm it's not a, saying anything with the, the names of some of the places we've got in Yorkshire, like Chaton, right, Chaton right. and Beniston. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> in a country that has cockfosters, you got no room to talk. <laughs> but, um, anyways, yeah, it's like Whiff and, Whiff and Spit is the name of this place, and it's, um, it's an island off, not even an island, it's just a tiny little piece of land off of uh, Souk, BC. But I think there used to be a brickworks there at one point. And she found, when she was there with the kids, she found an old brick and she brought it, brought it home with them. No. But she, she brought this brick home and her, her son started seeing this shadow creature walking around the bedroom and it mm. really started freaking him out. And, uh, the kid is sensitive anyways. Like this has come up before in the conversations she and I used to have, she would tell me about this, Yep. Mm. but, um, yeah, it persisted until she removed the, she put, had the brick up on the mantle in the living room and this persisted until she took the brick out and left it outside. So moral of the story is don't take shit home with you, you'll find. <laughs> Near miss. Okay, so this is a story my stepmom has told me about the experience she had with my dad who has since passed, God rest his soul. She has no idea how to explain anything that happened, but our family likes to theorize. The two of them were out celebrating my stepmom's birthday. My dad, being a loving husband, had gotten her tickets to a concert she really wanted to see. 
This was a big deal because the closest major metropolitan center was about two hours away from where they were living at the time. The plan was for them to drive into town, see the show, and then drive back home the same night. My dad was a road trip expert. It was his kind of thing. I've personally witnessed him drive 16 hours in the same position along winding coastal highway on nothing but Pepsi, Lay's potato chips, and 7-Eleven coffee. Plus, the route is a super simple two hours of highway. One hour driving east, take a left, and one hour of driving north. This will be important later. Moving on, they really enjoyed the concert and were ready to head home. It was about 11pm and very dark. They were on the highway for about 15 minutes and were just barely making out of the metro area when they got pulled over. My dad, who liked to pride himself on his ability to talk his way out of a ticket but was really just a kiss-ass, slowed down, pulled off the highway and into a parking lot. He then asked my stepmom to hand him his information from the glove box. He was watching her fumble with the glove box, neither of them paying attention outside of the car, and when they both looked up, they realized there were now dozens of police cars in the parking lot with all their lights and sirens on. The sheriff's office, state patrol, local patrol cars from all different agencies across the whole metro area. They were terrified, because being from a small town, they had never seen so many police before, let alone pulling them over. In the middle of their panic, as my stepmom puts it, quote, almost as soon as they showed up, they all just vanished. And then we were the only ones in the middle of the parking lot. Both of them were freaked out, but there's more. They continued their journey home talking about what the hell just happened. They finished the first hour stretch of highway, and as they got closer to the exit where they head back west, my stepmom noticed that there was nobody on the highway. My dad began taking the exit, when instantly, both of them and their car were suddenly in a field near the highway a couple miles before the exit ramp they had just taken. Both of them vividly remember taking the exit and were extremely confused and just wanted to get home. My stepmother tried to call the police, but there was no reception. They returned to the freeway, took the exit, and returned to the same place in the same field a couple miles from the exit. They took the exit one more time, but this time there was no glitch and they turned onto the last stretch of highway. This is when things get really freaky. At this intersection of highway, there is a gas station. So my dad pulled off to gas up. As they pulled into the parking lot, they noticed that all four or five of the cars are white, but there's nobody pumping gas into any of them. My stepmom got out of the car to go pay for gas when my dad grabbed her arm and told her she should stay in the car. He told her, as she tells it, I have a feeling that you're calling out for me from really far away, but I can't reach you. And both of them agree to go to a different gas station. They made the rest of the trip home without anything else strange happening, and there were people on the highway again. Once they got home, they slept it off, and life was normal. A day or two later, when my stepmom was reading the newspaper, she found an article stating that the gas station my dad stopped her from going into was robbed that same night. A guy killed the attendant and took a girl hostage who was in the store. He took her into the field behind the gas station to a tree where he killed her, and then himself. My stepmom thinks my dad and her were supposed to be the ones in the gas station, but at the last second, fate changed its mind. My dad didn't like to talk about it at all. And I think that is one of the most interesting stories we've had on this show in a while, because there is so much going on there. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think about Betty and Barney Hill. Uh, if, if you know anything about that, that's one of those 
abduction stories where there's missing time and glitches in the matrix, if you will. And uh, they didn't really uncover that they had this missing time uh, in what they believed had happened until there was a hypnotic regression sometime after their encounters. And what they, so they thought they saw was uh, some sort of craft. The, the fact that these people saw, you know, weird police cars, it's like, was it police cars that they were seeing? Or is that just what your mind puts on to those lights that you're seeing flashing at you everywhere? This one really got me. I was, I was really fascinated by this story. Paul, what are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I think we know what's happened there, don't we? They weren't police cars. No. That was the inside of the ship, and they were the controls and medical procedures that were flashing around them. Interesting. Yeah, it's like, the, the, and their psyche protected them by telling them that it was police cars. Screen and memories. That kind of thing. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. That's it. It's... When you look at a lot of abduction cases, there are always weird things in them, some of them, where they know something weird's happened, but often it's something that is based in reality, but it just doesn't make sense. I mean, there's some crazy stories. I'm trying to think who they were. There's a brilliant story about a couple who were truckers, and they were driving from Montana to somewhere, and they ended up running into a... 7-Eleven or a diner, absolutely frantic that they were being harassed by these tiny aliens who had chased them for miles and were firing, like, um, screws at them. And they went absolutely, like, crazy, were frantic, trying to call for help in this diner. And there's, there's so many stories like that of just really weird things. Or when people come back, things aren't quite right. Like Tom Reed, who is the Hillsborough, abduction that's uh that's on the netflix when when they came round and the wrong people were in the front seat his mum and his grandmother had switched places and the person right. who was in the driver's side couldn't actually drive the car or when you you come round and your clothes are on back to front or some people have even returned home with somebody else's clothes on and they're like hang on what's going on here but that's got all the hallmarks of missing time and being being taken and, and dropped off in the wrong place. Yeah, Bud Hopkins wrote, wrote a great book called Missing Time. Yeah, uh, he he's also the author of Intruders. But yes, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic book. If you ever get the chance to to check that out, it it is really worth a worth a read. Yeah, I was listening to one of Bud's interviews with Art Bell from '97 the other other day actually, and uh, they were talking about that. They were also talking about the the infamous Brooklyn Bridge abduction case. Hmm. I'm not familiar with that one. This is the one where a woman, it, it, it's one of the first, oh, well, I'm not sure if it's the first. It's certainly one of the few abduction cases that was witnessed by other people because it ended up being that two people got in touch with Bud Hopkins to tell him at first that they were police officers and they'd seen this woman and three grey aliens float out of a window above the Brooklyn Bridge and enter a craft. Mm, oh, yeah, yeah. And then it ended up that actually they weren't policemen. They were extremely secretive special agents of some description who were in a car with a very notable politician on the world stage who had also witnessed it. 
And he later oh, claimed dear. to have had his own abduction experience and said to Hopkins, if you ever tell anybody about it, I'll deny I've ever spoken to you. Hmm. Wow. I feel like he mentions that in Intruders. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It just didn't sound familiar to me at first, but... So, wh- how do you, in terms of this story, Paul, how do you think the, the relocation part... So, for example, they're in a field, so they try to leave the field, but then they're back in the field. How do you think that ties into the, the abduction theory? Because, well, firstly, why are they in a field? You, you would remember driving into a field. I don't care. Unless you're both absolutely intoxicated, perhaps to the point that you wouldn't be able to drive anyway. How can both of you not realise you're in the middle of a field? You know, shared hallucinations, whilst often put forward as explanations, have no basis in scientific reality. Nobody's ever been able to prove it. They just say, oh, well, perhaps they've all seen the same thing. But on what level? Even people who take hallucinogenic drugs do not have the same experience. They see very different things. Some people see completely different things. Some people may see things that are slightly similar. But even things down to like the colours and the shapes and the shadows are very different to each individual, even if they're in the same room together. So when you've got people who are quite clearly saying, well, I remember to this point and then we're in a field. Well, how did they get from there to there? I mean, there are sometimes where people will say, oh, well, I, you know, especially some of the drives people do in North America where, you know, for us, we like, what? You drove for six hours? You would be in the sea here. And <laughs> I've, I've driven across the country. I know exactly what you're talking about. And people just seem to go, and then they realise that they've been driving for an hour and they've no idea how they got there. That's very different to two people coming around in a, in a field going, hang on, why are we here? And then going, and then going, hang on, why are we here? So it's almost as if what happened was they realised that they dropped them somewhere, went back, put them back, and then thought, oh, no, we're, we're messing about too much now. Let's just leave them to it. It reminds me a little bit of the story from the Haunting of Ch- or the uh, High Strangeness in Chicago episode. Remember the, um, the couple who were coming back from Indiana and just skip? And it was kind of similar, too, because it, it, in, that, in that story, they sort of entered this kind of liminal space because every, there was no one around them. They were alone on the highway. And I feel like you and I have talked about this before. I cannot for the life of me remember what episode it was on. It was on one of the earlier ones. But there was that story of the guy who was driving to, I think they worked for NASA, and they were driving to the office, and they got there way too fast. Yeah. And there was no one on the road. We ended up talking about that pilot in the Bermuda Triangle who ended up going through that tunnel and got... 150 miles away and when he checked his gas tank and everything he'd he'd hardly used any fuel but he'd flown something like an hour flight in 30 minutes but he'd gone through this kind of vortex that had popped him out above miami or something yeah oh wow and i i remember you know you and i were just paul you and i were just on the dairyland frights podcast and john asked us you know is there any is there any paranormal phenomenon that that bothers you that like still has the power to bother you because obviously we've been doing this for a while you get pretty hardened to it. And, and for me, missing time is the one that still bothers me. And I think that's why this story connected with me the way it did, because it's, there is something I think uniquely disempowering about it because. Right. Like you're, you've lost your agency 100%. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. You just, you, you have no control over, over where you're at. And that is just a, a frightening thing. I think especially as well, when it's coupled with that kind of 
moving forward in, with your life and then for whatever reason you start to have flashbacks or memories or whatever and you begin to think, hang on, what I thought happened didn't happen the way I've always thought it did. Things start to leak from wherever they've been locked away in the subconscious and they start to, to come forwards for whatever reason. Maybe there's certain limits on them or certain other aspects of life can unlock things unwittingly for people or like as we were discussing earlier on and we were talking about specific subjects and Mike started feeling really anxious you know I mean it's like I've mentioned that experience I had as a kid that I always until I spoke to Paul Sinclair I'd always considered it to be a paranormal one about the whisperers um, and I remember being stood on my bed for no reason and all I could hear was was these voices going <laughs> for about two minutes and then the next thing I was sliding into my bed like a human banana I didn't touch the sides and my bed was against the wall so I couldn't get into the bed that way because I'd smash my head into the wall and I just went straight into the covers and fell fast asleep what was that right. yeah so that's like 40 years ago and I still remember it and it was in the house we'd moved out of so it wasn't even connected to the haunted house I grew up in it was the new house was this the? It's like my my Spider Man eyes story that I told you, Brennan. Yeah, exactly the same kind of thing, where you know I came to at a friend's place. He lived two doors down. I was spending the night there. I was eight or nine years old, and uh, came to to see this thing standing beside the bed. Um, like I was laying on my side, and right beside me was this thing with this strange shaped head with eyes that I thought at the time looked like Spider-Man. So I always thought in my brain, I had seen Spider-Man and it didn't freak me out. It didn't freak me out at all. Like I felt comfortable with Spider-Man there because I guess I trusted Spider-Man. But later on, you know, I'm talking to Morgan and other people on uh, supernatural circumstances and I start to have like this panic, like exactly, exactly that kind of thing. Yeah. Like Braxy. <laughs> The, of the Flatwoods monster, <laughs> which is, uh, it's so crazy. Like, uh, what did I see? Was I asleep and seeing something in my dream? Was I sort of in like a weird fugue state? Did I have a lucid dream when I was a kid? Or did I actually see something that was really there? And what, what's that about? You know, I remember seeing it, and then I remember nothing else until the next morning. So, there's, there's an interesting point in what you've just said there, Mike. That because you thought it looked like Spider Man, you felt safe. So perhaps they knew that because there's loads of it's, that's how it presented itself, kind of thing. Because there's there's tons of stories. Preston Dennett's done lots of work in regards to these kind of experiences. Like when kids will wake up and they'll see like a a teddy bear, but it's acting a bit strange, like it's walking about, or a toy. Toy monkey, I think, in one story. And the toys are walking about and they feel okay about that because it's their toy that they know is walking. But then thinking, well, why is my toy alive? What's going on there? Oh, well, it's my toy. It's fine. I love that toy. And then they go back to sleep. And it's only afterwards they begin to think about it and think, hang on a minute, why was my bear walking about my room? Yeah, John Yost, a guest we had on Supernatural Circumstances, talked, talked about that particular thing. It's really, really fascinating that is it your own mind giving you something to protect you from like these people seeing police cars because 
Perhaps they're comfortable with police cars. They don't have anything to worry about. Maybe they're getting pulled over. Oh, well, kind of thing. But is that what their psyche tells them to protect them from what's really going on? Or is it that thing that is coming from somewhere else that is dealing with them that projects that somehow? Yeah. Well, often we know that people, when they have traumatic experiences, will remember it in a way that protects them often. So they don't keep reliving it and go into shock all the time. The brain protects the person from an experience that traumatizes them until they reach a point where they can either finally go, that's not what happened, or their brain suddenly can't keep pretending it's got this false version of reality and and therefore it falls down. It happens in all kinds of cases when we talk about things that we would consider normal trauma, as, as disturbing as some of these things are, from, from serious accidents to, to sexual assaults and, and serious injuries. I mean, people have accidents where you think they, they should be dead and they somehow survive and they're very relaxed because their body's just kicked into this kind of preservation mode that creates this kind of aura of calm, even though the situation's, you know, everything's gone to hell in a handcart. I, I had a, an experience when I was 11 years old, almost 12, where a, where a pedophile tried to abduct me, and uh, it was a really rough experience for me growing up. Mm. Uh, but I had to, to protect myself psychologically. I was wearing a, a red windbreaker at the time that all my buddies had this, we were sort of like this little gang of little kids, yeah. and we all had red windbreakers. Yeah. But I could not look at that red windbreaker after that, and I stuffed it in the closet up as high as I could put it so I would never have to see it again. Maybe my mom found it there years later and thought, what is Michael's red windbreaker doing up here? But anything that would remind me of that situation for years to come, I couldn't psychologically go there because it was so horrifying to me. Uh, So yeah, I guess we do find ways to protect ourselves from what's happened to us. And, and that's why I kind of think, I don't know if it is anything that's actually malevolent. I think we project the malevolence on the thing. Mm. It's, it's like the story that Danny Aiello tells to Tim Robbins in Jacob's Ladder, yes. where he talks about uh, Eckhart, the philosopher, who is hell, is this what we, are these actually demons trying to tear me away from this life, or are they angels freeing me kind of thing? You know, what is it? What is it that I am projecting onto this particular thing? Is it actually something to be afraid of, or is it something to embrace? I think we've got so much bad programming from religion too. You know, everything that is not dogma is demonic. And I think it's, it's really hard. Like, I think that has generationally put a fear in us of anything that that we can't quantify because it, it, it is a th- anything that exists outside the framework of the church, you know, the church, the, the, the structure of religion sees as a threat to the church itself. But it works on the other side when people talk about specific paranormal events, people will try and reevaluate or change a paranormal encounter of any description to fit into what they believe it to be. The broad, yeah, it's all about their worldview. Yeah. yeah the Broadwater, uh, Broadhaven school, I've seen people recently trying to say that that wasn't aliens and UFOs that these kids saw, even though every single one of them does. It was, it was the fae, because that's what they believe it is. And the, the witnesses are wrong, they're right. But which I think is 
it's as bad as a skeptic saying that they're all delusional. It's two sides of the same coin. You're just coming from with different belief systems that are unshakable. And the key part of all this is the witness's experience. You d- you don't value it. You don't care. You're basically saying to them, they couldn't understand what was happening to them. I can. I know more than they do, even though you weren't there. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, pardon me, that's why I think all kinds of dogma are dangerous. You know, dogmatic thinking generally, you, you can't have, you can't, you can't have an arrived position. You have to constantly be examining new information. And I know that's hard because, you know, we like to set ourselves up, especially I feel like eh, there's a little bit in this field where people like to be seen as experts. You know, a lot of us never got over, got not being invited to prom. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> we, don't we, have tried to, we didn't have problems when I was a kid. So it wasn't there you fun. go. Yeah. You, you, you avoided it. Thank um, God. We just had school discos instead. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds way better. Depend on, no, thanks. Depending on how much you drank at 15, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> fair, fair. I still would have stayed at home and watched Delta Force 3 with my friends the way I did at prom. But that's, that's again, another sad <laughs> conversation entirely. <laughs> Oh dear. Yes. But anyways, point being, I, I think people like to set themselves up as experts. They like to have their pet theories and they like to sort of position themselves as authorities. And I really find like there's been shows I've picked up and I've listened to for a while. And I thought you were really, you're trying to position yourself as some kind of like psychic guru. And I just can't, I can't with that shit. That's one of the things I appreciate about, about supernatural circumstances is you guys, you just, you approach the topic with an open mind and try to examine what is going on there. And, and I, I just really enjoy that about the show. Yeah. Neither of us are gurus or experts on anything, but yes, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. We are no, no gurus. I think anybody that gets to a point in the Fortean world where they don't think they need to learn anything else, you might as well just give up on them. You've got to keep learning. If you, if, if you stop, nobody knows everything and nobody knows. No. You can't take that person seriously, surely. You can know a lot about I things. Know, uh, if they know something for a fact, that's, that's kind of like, oh, I guess the conversation's over because you know that for a fact. You know, there's these people. There's, yeah. there's no more critical thinking exactly. happening like here. All these people who think Bigfoot's really big and friendly, whereas I'm moving towards the head-pulling-off cannibal theory person. Well, if we learned anything from Rogue, that's not all he's pulling off. <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> Yikes. All right. Well, that is going to do it for our episode of Things to Do in Parking Lots When You're Dead. Mike, thanks for hanging out with us, man. This has been a blast. There's so much stuff. Uh, the patrons are going to get, I think, om- almost an hour of bonus conversation out of this. Oh, wow. And, and trauma. Yeah. 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 Trauma. <laughs> hour of additional trauma. <laughs> yeah. So just, yeah, thanks for, thanks for being here, man. This Thank has been you. so much fun. I was looking forward to it all week. Like once we talked about it, it was just like, I was so excited for Thursday. I've just rubbing my little mitties together, <laughs> excited to have conversations with both of you guys, because you've both been so kind uh, to Morgan and I and to Dark Poutine. And, and I love what you both do. So keep doing it, please. Thanks, man. And uh, on the off chance that there is one person who has recently arrived back to civilization after living in the Arctic for a number of years listening to this show and they don't know who Dark Poutine or what Dark Poutine is, where can everyone find you online? Uh, They can find me at darkpoutine.com or wherever you podcast. And the same thing with Supernatural Circumstances. We are at supernaturalcircumstances.com and wherever you find podcasts. You can find us on social media. I think Supernatural Circumstances even has TikTok now. So 
Uh, That's one for the kids. I don't understand the TikTok, but whatever. It keeps going. That's it. Things continue to insist on existing despite my not knowing about them. So Right. (laughs) What's TikTok? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be. It's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT. That's S-H-O-U-T. To 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks again to Mike Brown for hanging out with us. If you're not already listening to Dark Poutine, which I kind of have to imagine you already are, but if you're not, you can find Dark Poutine everywhere you get your podcasts, as well as Supernatural Circumstances, which Mike co-hosts with the wonderful and talented Morgan Knudsen. All right, the ghost story guys are... Luke Greensmith, who helps us find our stories. Luke is also the host of the Luke Lore podcast, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Tanya Downing, who manages our Facebook community and helps with editing. Adam Lynch, who handles our video editing. Adam's also host of the podcast Weekly Creep with Delsey. Joseph Camo, who helps manage our YouTube account. Joseph is host of The Cardinal Rule, a show about Arizona Cardinals football. You can find that on YouTube. He also co-hosts Weird Together With Me. Our captain, leading us into our paranormal port, is Brennan Stoll. And of course, my co-host is the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Bestel himself, the paranormal Johnny Carson, 
host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? So, uh, I will be uncovering a case known as Europe's Roswell with Mark Ollie as we dive into an extremely odd UFO incident that happened in Wales. Once again, strange things are happening in the skies of Wales, um, which saw debris recovered from an alleged crash back in the early 80s and uh, has all kinds of interesting things as well as Mark sharing his own personal experience that took 20 years to be validated when he read about it from other witnesses' perspectives in a book by Jenny Randalls. So we dive into that. Um, oh, wow. And then uh, Tobias Wayland from the Single Fortune Society will be joining me to discuss some of the weird and wonderful traditions and weird ghostly things that go on in this season of Christmas cheer on the following week. Fantastic. And where can everyone find you online? You can find me uh, online as Paul Bestall on Instagram and also Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms and good podcast aggregators. All right. I am Largely the Truth on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd. You can also find my other show, Weird Together, which is a sociological look at independent horror films, co-hosted again with Dr. Joseph Camo, everywhere you get your podcasts. And uh, you can find Paul and I on both the Dairyland Frights podcast and the TV Trivia podcast, both of which are out now. You'll find links to those at ghoststoryguys.com. Both are really great conversations. One, of course, John with Dairyland Frights. We get into uh, the classic BBC production, Ghost Watch. And TV trivia is me and Paul answering trivia about Ghostbusters. And that is a hoot. Uh, mm-hmm. We love recording with Brian, Brian Sheehan, of course, host of TV trivia podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we always have a great time with Brian. We're really looking forward to next year already. He's <laughs> going to have us back on. So uh, yeah, again, that's me and Paul on the TV trivia podcast and Dairyland Frights, both of which you will find linked at ghoststoryguys.com. As we said at the top of the show, this show exists thanks to the kindness of our Apple Podcast subscribers and our patrons. And if you'd like to join their ranks, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. That gets you not only ad-free early release, that gets you bonus shows like Host Adventures and Me and Paul, which is... uh, a monthly live stream where Paul and I kind of shoot the breeze with our, our patrons. And you also get access to our bonus conversations, which you get from every major episode. Uh, I'm a little behind on one of them, but generally those are anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes of me and Paul and usually our guest, if we have a guest, talking about uh, spooky stuff, movies, whatever's going on with our lives. It's a ton of fun. It's always a great time. Mm-hmm. And again, that's exclusive to patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. And of course, if you're a patron at the $20 level and above, well, my friend, that makes you part of a very elite club. That makes you part of a little something that we like to call Ghost Force. (laughs) That's right. Patrons at the $20 level and above get thanked here every second episode because you're a part of Ghost Force and in Ghost Force we ride or we die and, and then we come back again because we're ghosts that's yeah yeah Paul gets it <laughs> that's Paul being very tired it's it's quite late there we talked with Mike for a really long time 
This time around, the members of Ghost Force are... Aesum Saragon. Big Titty Kitty. Bran Weiser Pink Tutu. Carrie Lambertus. Cheesy Thoughts. Cheryl Baker. Crazy Mom. CT. Anthony Michad. Generic Bob. Hannah Brown. Hannah Siemens. Hillary DeSasua. Jade Moores. Jason R. Slaughter. Slaughter, 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 Slaughter. Jennifer Mullen. Jennifer Shackle. Jessica R. Linder. Joseph Como. Caitlin Park. Malevolent Clamato. Mara Noriega. Mark Sandler. Merlin Hansen. Michael Canny. Peter Guns 08.5. Rockin' Ronnie Shenanigans. Samantha Ellis. Shannon Steyer. Trent Cannon. You are the few. You are the spooky. You are Ghost Force. <laughs> For real, guys, thank you so, so much. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate our members of Ghost Force. We appreciate all our patrons, but the folks in Ghost Force, you guys are crazy, and we love you for it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you'd like to have your name read out in that segment every second episode, sign up for Ghost Force at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Do you have any other guest spots coming up? Yes, uh, I am on the most recent episode of Jim Harold's Campfire amongst many luminaries that have preceded me and uh, honoured and delighted to have been invited by Jim to share a spooky experience in my current property. Very, very cool. You'll find that linked at ghoststoryguys.com. Every time one of us does a guest spot somewhere, you will, you will find it linked there. If you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, head to our website at ghoststoryguys.com. You'll find t-shirts, stickers, all kinds of cool stuff, including my new favourite design, the inimitable Paul Bestel mug, which is a wonder and I need one and I don't know why I don't have one yet. Perfect to terrify the children at Christmas with. That's it. There is no nobler cause. <laughs> Again, that's at uh, ghoststoryguys.com Shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and musician Jerry Smith. You can find more from Jerry at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts everywhere you stream your music. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kersov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. That is streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, the Ghost Story Guys house label. And I guess that's going to do it. Well, we'll be back next week, but until then... Into the Darkness We Go. Rogers the kangaroo who was famously filmed crushing a, a, a tin bucket with his bare paws. Sweet zombie Jesus. Yeah. Oh, this is chain smoking. Right. I, I get it. I get it now. Yeah. Oh, I'm hooked on crack. I, I'll get, oh, I get it now. <laughs> Two, three.
four, four five, five, six, six seven, 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 eight, eight, eight nine, 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 ten. ten. <laughs> now you have my permission to die. <laughs> I need a drink too. All right. I'm going to go you, grab you it. Go for it. I'll read the story. Those fuckers. I want a drink now. Anyways. I got to meet Dario Argento and realized very quickly he didn't understand a word I was saying and that he is really, truly an Italian person who barely speaks any English. <laughs> Did you say, why are you so fucked up? <laughs> no. <laughs> my biggest brush with fame? If you can see who that... Oops, that's my grandmother. If you can see who that gentleman was, just a sec. Is that, is that Baggins? Uh, no, it is George Lucas. Oh. I was in line with oh, George yeah. Lucas at... At the Starbucks in uh, Shaw Tower in downtown Vancouver. And, uh, and other people were like, oh my God, George Lucas. And so the person working at the Starbucks said, are you? And he says, yes. Yes, I am. Please don't hate me for and, what uh, I've done over the last yeah, 20 exactly. years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not exactly. me kicking you in the penis, it's my midichlorians. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wasting Karen right. Allen. Yeah, that's, a real, that's the biggest crime of that movie. <laughs> Ooh. Where are my pants? Boo! It'll be the yeah. it'll be the uh, the crying guys. Yeah, that's exactly it. Exactly. Yeah, oh, the crying game. Sometimes. <laughs> oh. Actually, I got something to show you guys. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to draw this to a close now, so we can. Sorry, Tanya. All right. Jesus Christ. You're welcome. It's <laughs> <sighs> not right. the first time I've heard somebody say that in my presence. Well, I'm going to have to live with that now. <laughs> first a graveyard story, now this. 